in the middle of telling me this story about tailgating at a Jimmy Buffett show. And just, he pulls out a beard comb and just starts like, you know, fixing it. And it was just like, yeah, beard combs, man. I've never had a beard that, that warranted a comb. I have, I have mine in the, uh, in the roadster. If I go top down anywhere, by the time I get there, I look homeless inside the center. All right. Now I'm not going to be a public Hey everybody, this is Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Ramsey. Welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. Episode 100. Which pops on the calendar randomly, so here it is. After like, <laughs> after a year of a saying, decade? oh, episode Maybe. 100's coming up, we'll do something special. It's like, <laughs> we never got there and now, not to say your present here. is not special, Ramsey. <laughs> but it's not centennial. <laughs> I was about to read, you, you really yeah, know how to treat a girl curve. It's not the centennial fanfare <laughs> that we promised everyone from the beginning. Because uh, I've got these, we are these, stoked this mariachi coming in in five minutes. Yeah. So <laughs> speak for yourself. Like, I already brought the fanfare. Stoked to Thankfully, have you. Someone's, someone's celebrating. We decided yeah, to, to be here. pop this one off because cool things are happening in the world. And you understand them. But I'll let you take it from there in terms of an introduction. Unfortunately so. Uh, for yourself. Sure. Thanks. Uh, my name's Ramsey Brown. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called the AI Responsibility Lab. My background spans behavioral engineering and brain architecture, digital therapeutics, mental health, uh, and how we might use immersive reality as medicine itself, artificial intelligence, and now most recently AI safety and trustworthy AI. So the fundamental questions of how do we help the world's biggest companies navigate the use of data with grace and dignity and profitability such that we can say that when we build an AI system, it's both fundamentally aligned with our notions of virtue and ethics. It's not going to create quality assurance failures and hurt people or the company. We understand how to control it. We know what it's going to do. And fundamentally, this ends up being about whether or not companies and we as society can trust the machines we build in short-term things, like, is this going to work in my business unit, to long-term things, like, do we know what happens on the other side of building a machine that's even 1% smarter than the median intelligence human? And all of those things span AI safety, and that's what I work on leading the AI Responsibility Lab. Hence why we're going to talk about ChatGPT today. That's, uh, that's some dense dense stuff you're chasing and it's as we evolve in this conversation or anyone who's nerdy enough to know what's going on right now i think they realize how wildly important (laughs) all of those bullet points are (laughs) the the way i talk about it is we work on the world's second most important problem the world's first most important problem is is total biosphere collapse from the bottom. Don't out melt the, the planet. Chain. Yeah. Well, it's not just don't melt the planet. It's don't push the oceans too far out of the range that like phytoplankton like to live in in pH, salinity, or temperature because they make up the bottom of the food chain, and they're yeah, terribly not, fragile. Let's not completely right, shut so, down any circulation on our planet. <laughs> right. Of right. Air and water. So it, it, yeah. It's not like oh no, the megafauna, the favorite species I looked at at the zoo is gone. It's oh my god. The thing that ate sunlight's all dead. Oh, no. Right. That's the world's most important problem. Um, I don't know as much as I wish to about decarbonization um, or nuclear fusion. 
um, which I'd love to know more about, but I know a lot about AI. So we looked at the world's second most important problem, which is what the hell do we do about thinking machines, both in awesome. qu quotidian levels and at big levels. If you want to dig in on some of those topics, you can reference our backlog, which <laughs> remarkably still gets steady traffic on the Spotify. Good. Our last it episode was our, traffic. our most recent episode, I don't know, six months ago is our most performant. It's oh, an interesting cool. well, thing, look, having a that. lot of long tail content sitting out there. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so, imagine that. You, you talk about the world's hardest problems and people want to learn about them. Huh. Who'd have thunk? So we're not, um, we're not recording video. I realized I forgot to tell you that in the preamble. Great. I look like shit. But it also means that people don't necessarily understand the context of the epic beard that we were talking about before. <laughs> but it's a good segue into... Starting back from how we met, um, go for it. Because I think it's important for the 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 word picture that gets us to. Uh, yeah how how uh, would you want to tell that? What's what's the thirty second Ramsey version? as a character? Uh, I got I got invited to some like random. It was just as I was starting to dip back into startup stuff after law school, and I got invited to some random like salon. He was just like, oh, "We're having some buddies over." Uh, some people are going to do some presentations. Then we're going to talk about them. I was like, I can get down with that. Uh, and you talked about like memes and not memes in the sense that people are probably all envisioning right now. Memes in the sense right. of like the idea Dawkins that ideas memes. move like genes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah I get, so that's uh, my, that's my talk called dangerous ideas. But you were also wearing like a, like a, cardigan with nothing under it which means your giant about pile right. of of chest hair was just <laughs> hanging out right. and you were wearing like a strong and no shoes it was like uh, it was that also very much this vibe right. like i live a block away i just walked here in my comfort and now i'm yeah, gonna be able to hang out about together this, more often this in ridiculous person. topic <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna. Uh, my my man, Bud, and I are gonna talk about why your thermostat and the global financial system are really the same thing, just with different arrangements of parts. And in spite of that, you spend your time like cruising around the globe talking to powerful people about the importance of this problem. And I, yeah. and I have, I appreciate the coexistence of those things. What a hey, strange duality of man, right? made too. I literally was just thinking. Yeah. I literally was just thinking about how the exchange of money is the same as resistance on an electrical system, like last night on the way home from the gym. I know that's pretty weird and abstract to be something Jones. that you just also mentioned. Jones, <laughs> Jones, it's complex adaptive systems all the way down. And it always all the way down. Been. Yep. All the way. You are, you, you are a, a subcomponent of subcomponents in a fractal hierarchy of this <laughs> thing that the universe is doing as the zeroth law of thermodynamics, which is that order craves more order. And if it weren't the cells in you making up the systems, making up you and your family and a society and an economy, it would just rearrange itself in a different way. But there's Lovely. only like three principles to how complex adaptive <laughs> systems arrange themselves. So when you look at them, you squint, you say, son of a bitch, that thing's just flow and that's just current. <laughs> and you're looking at how people move through a supermarket checkout. You're still looking at the same system. I love it. See, this is the perfect 100th episode. Things yeah, that <laughs> you and I have talked about come up constantly in a professional yeah. context because of the company you were working for at the time, which I feel like you should introduce because it's interesting context, but I'll start with the story that comes up the most often, 
which was so we I hadn't we hung out a bit and then I don't think I'd seen you for like nine months or something and I was at a career fair like one of those you know hosted by the city of Los Angeles in this giant building all the local yeah. companies are going to set up 20,000 people, people. 20,000 yeah. people in suits with nice little folios full of copies of their resume very crisp yeah it's and a very professional companies you know very it, very very buttoned up right. very professional and then these idiots at dopamine labs <laughs> but the whole time i was walking around i kept noticing that people were carrying bud lights <laughs> or like equivalent caliber light yeah, beer. Coors Light. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Coors Light. And, someone, there's every now and then you see someone. It's like 11:45 in the morning. Yeah, and someone in a suit you know, it's a Coors on, a, light. on a Thursday. <laughs> so totally out of context. I, and then I got I, I got to the booth where you guys were set up, and you turned out to be the course of the Coors Lights. Yes. So uh, we thought. So we're we're the definition of uh, you know five idiots in a garage startup like quite literally <laughs> we did it and when so Time Magazine came and interviewed us for what we were doing their, for their article the Masters of Mind Control and they took this photo that we called like the Norman Rockwell photo of like startup shitheads <laughs> and it's it's us like posed in our garage like writing math on the wall but like it just ended up like it looks like a Rockwell the way they shot it um, so we were just broke as hell because we were part, just perennially undercapitalized <laughs> and we were poor grad students so we were used to being broke and we just made it work and where every other booth and every other company had like big professional banners and signage like as the coo and the co-founder i'm looking at like those things cost i'm like there's no way we're affording that that's 600 whole dollars i can't justify spending that <laughs> that's how broke we were and said well you know what if we went into like we went to the the grocery store and we got those funny golden mylar balloons that they have for like trashy 30 year old birthday parties and we're like we're just gonna get some mylar balloons that, that spell out our company it just spells out dopamine like that's kind of a little more on brand admittedly for us <laughs> we get these mylar balloons but we want to have something else that's funny we want people to remember us we want this to work so you guys remember like dizzy bat like that game like you, you put your head on the bat and like you have to run oh, around yeah. the bat a little circle oh, yeah. until you're, you want to barf <laughs> So we made anyone who came up, our shtick was, came up to our booth, our shtick was this. We would talk to everybody, but you had to take your resume and either crumple it into a ball or fold it into a paper airplane. And then you did the dizzy bat and then you had to throw it like 15 feet through these series of hoops. And the big hoop said, we'll call you back. A small <laughs> hoop that was like comically too small. And that was the whole point said, you're hired. And then a hoop in the middle size said, free beer. And believe it or not, enough people got them through the free beer hoops. And we'd take their resumes and we'd stuff them in a box. And then we ended up hiring people out of this process. But people either walked away with a, a small plastic dinosaur or a, a Coors Light or a crisp high five and overwhelming disorientation as to what just happened to them. And the best part was watching these very, very thoughtful, serious professionals being told they need to crumple up their beautiful resume that they printed on like high weight paper and they're just sitting there trembling with shame thinking like i can't do it i can't do this to my resume that's lovely my brain my brain space for the last year and a half has been so far from the story you just told <laughs> it's so refreshing <laughs> that, to that hear. makes two of us that makes two so, of us good sir so the as, reason much as, it... as much as kerp tells these stories i'm like oh i'm past that phase of my life I am still currently in flip-flops and a pair of swim trunks beneath this. So. The reason I I work in a basement, I'm still wearing my pajamas. <laughs> in a sense, I've achieved the same 
so the so the the reason it comes up in current context though is the the extent to which that creates a filter so i ended up spending the rest of that like i made one lap around everything took note of the fact that spacex had like a dirty folded table and a thing that was clearly printed out on an inkjet and a line around the whole place and i was just like okay it doesn't you know so. yeah they don't, they don't need to try what are you talking about <laughs> they don't need to try exactly so uh so i'm spending the rest of the thing there standing with your co-founder dalton yep who's a character in his own right but academically just the what what's his phd neuroeconomics yeah yeah he's the smartest like, dude you that? knows smartest dude you yeah. know <laughs> Like, what does that even mean? He's kind of like, oh, I sort of invented it, although it's caught on. Yeah, uh, yeah. I took behavioral economics and <laughs> stuffed it in an MRI. But I was talking to him. I was just, you know, we were just shooting the shit while you guys were kind of running the booth and people were coming. Yeah, because you were just this. you were just my my funny friend from that salon at this. Yeah. Point. So, hmm. and the and the first person that turned away, I was kind of like, wow. So people actually don't do it it's so harmless and dalton was mm -hmm. like oh yeah surprising percentage of people just go nope and walk away and fuck them they weren't going to fit at our company anyway and That's a good uh, filter. but the reason it comes up is it, it puts this explicit filter there where it's like look if you want to run work with the kind of people that think about the world this way or or regard themselves personally and professionally <laughs> this way but still execute stuff you look at that and go, ooh. Because I also kept pitching him ways that I might get my resume through the middle. I was like, has anybody like tried rolling it up? And he's like, a, a few. <laughs> I was like, but that probably wouldn't work. You'd have to tape a pencil inside the thing, and then you maybe yeah, would have a chance it. of like slinging yeah. it through the hole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, was, there's a reason know, we did it. I think that's well, what Dalton was like. I, I, I might like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's cool because you were trying to hack the system, and, and that's one of his one of his soft spots. Um, uh. Well, it's this, it's this thing that that Peter Thiel has talked about in Zero to One: this idea of um, no matter how you try to cut it, every really small team doing something that is very absurdly different has a, pro especially at least in tech, has a propensity to be deeply monocultural in one way or another, and a little weird and a little cult like. And he doesn't say those things in a pejorative sense as much as mm -hmm. if you're going to expect people to follow to to row with you off the side of the cliff of human knowledge, <laughs> and you say we're just gonna we might free fall for the rest of forever, but let's find out where this goes. You end up needing a, a group of people who are kind of slightly maladjusted in their own quirky ways, but all in the same direction. Mm -hmm. That have things like an, uh, you know a cultural backlog of shared concepts and memes and identities such that um, you're basically doing no cultural discovery. You're just doing sheer invention against the problem as opposed to, can I learn how to get along with this person? You are aggressively undercapitalized. You end up in miserable working conditions that most of the people would look at as self-exploitation. Um, <laughs> and it ends up looking something closer to like uh, Shackleton's journey to the South Pole <laughs> than working at a mature enterprise made of different people of diverse backgrounds with unique needs and ages and orientations and identities and cultures and gods. Now, that, that is really uncommon for, at least at that time, that kind of startup. You end up with this thing that's very homogenous and you end up with then huge problems that come from that. 
obviously. And when you know monoculture starts growing, it inevitably ends up being frictional. And then you get people saying like, look, you can't just be running a frat house or you need to take down the pull-up bar or you need to actually hire real HR. And all of these are, are growing pains, especially of the California venture-backed software scene that it's still trying to contend with because at best mm-hmm. it's productive and at worst it's absolutely exploitative and hurtful to a lot of people. So we're thinking the, the, the whole thing is still trying to navigate. Ours always came down on the side of, of don't take yourself too seriously. Um, and, and we maintained a, a good cultural edge there with, where you know, it could be a conducive and flourishing and loving place. But, but we did want to turn people away that took themselves too seriously because we knew that that wouldn't be the fit. If the whole point is you're going to work on the world's hardest problems, you need to be able to, at the end of the day, kind of laugh about it while you do it. Uh, yeah. You guys had an exit with dopamine. They were successful we did. in the end. We sold did. it. We so, sold it so off it to so. Ariana Huffington at Thrive Global. So people know that it's not a crash and burn situation. You effectively no. deployed this culture into acquisition. Yeah, we did. It worked. Uh, and then started working on other things, which brings you back today to talk about chat GPT. It um, does. Yeah, this this is a, a fun path that I took through it. And when I, when I tell people the story about how I got here... The the easy starting point is that um, NATO reached out to me in, I want to say, 2018 and said, we're having a summit in Latvia and we want you to come be a speaker. We saw a piece that you did on the BBC about addictive technology and the role of AI in shaping human behavior. That feels like something we need to be thinking about. Do you want to come give a presentation on whether or not humans still have free will anymore on, in the age <laughs> of artificial intelligence? And I think like the to like 27 or 28 year old me this didn't phase me as much They're like oh that's cool like sure i'll be there that sounds fun i'm gonna talk um and i'm looking back on it not like oh what an honor but the idea that holy cow an organization like nato is sitting around staring at data and the impact of data on things as basic as do we maintain autonomy anymore over our, our self-determined rights that they were thinking about that problem then is probably the thing I point to first is part of the origin of what we do now with the AI Responsibility Lab, which is that there's, if if we have a 10x or 100x in um, how efficiently uh, we can send email, it doesn't, it, that's important, but it's not going to redefine what it means to be a person. If we have a 10 or 100x improvement in uh, the targeting of advertisements uh, to a zip code, that is a marginal change in my life. If we have a 10 or 100x in a machine's ability to use language and symbols to perform the types of behaviors that we traditionally associate with humans, that fundamentally changes every aspect of the human condition in almost irreversible ways. And I narrowly don't mean to say it just makes your emails a little faster to write. I narrowly mean to say it will change everything from your relationship to the divine and your own sexuality to macroeconomics, the demand for human labor gross world product, social inequality, the structure of warfare, what it means to be entertained, all of that changes overnight when you have even a few steps from where we are today in terms of the ability to fundamentally automate all of the things that humans do with language and thinking. And today we stand at functionally the doorstep of that process. And this is the ninth time maybe in the past week I've chatted with someone about what's going on with ChatGPT as if everyone's suddenly shocked. <laughs> we knew this was always coming. We knew this was the goal. We've been talking about this for 75 years. If ChatGPT is shocking, it's because we haven't been paying attention. 
But for those of us who, who think about this for a living and think about where are we taking this, where do we want to go, the thing that, that we're all reflecting on right now is that we all saw this coming. What's cool is it's finally crossing the gap. Now my mom mm-hmm. knows about large language models. And now people, so we had, we had a wine tasting at the Yacht Club last night. Now I'm striking up conversations with people maybe twice my age who know what ChatGPT is at a Yacht Club on a Thursday night in <laughs> Marina del Rey, California. That's the, that is still a bit of an early adopter market in a global scale. But to me, it's signaling that there's a chasm getting crossed now where people are looking at this and saying, well, you know, I saw something on the news about that thing that's getting banned because it thinks. And, and now, you're, now you're passing the parents test. Now you're here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you think it's happening this time. Why why there's a global conversation? Because I know my experience over the last few weeks initially was so strongly, this, this is kind of me trying to describe my internal response, was so strongly like, I know this is coming. I'm a big believer and I've been in, I've been a fan of science fiction my entire life. It's driven everything I do, right? As, as an engineer and an entrepreneur. But every time I've seen something, it's turned out to just be junk. And so I was so resistant yeah. for two weeks. I was like, I was trying to read about how it's working, how it's set up. I was trying to break it. Uh, and and all there's stuff to uncover everywhere there. But ultimately, a couple of weeks into it, I'm like, I bugged this you is, about it. It's enough. different now. It's yeah, and Kirk wouldn't happened. stop sending me TikToks, which Weird. I hate. It's like sending <laughs> your friend balls of cocaine. It's really inappropriate. <laughs> TikTok is so stupid. It's really inappropriate. First, first, I think we should back up to what's happening from like a technical understanding standpoint. Yep. If we're going to yep. follow the real sort of engineering model here, uh, okay. like like what large language models, machine learning, give us yep. the like quick journey into this how we yeah. got here from perfect what people have seen since perfect. Or, so you know, since so if. What's, we're, we're gonna, what was that? We're, we're what gonna, was that early AIM bot, Smarter Child? Ah, oh my God. I'm how many hours <laughs> I spent talking to that thing. All right, so we're, we're going to go back. and we're, we're actually going to, because this is what I do, um, we've got to go back to the 1930s and the 1950s where we really started this journey of artificial intelligence and we defined some of the original terms and you had some of the original thinkers who were working on these problems about what why is it that brains appear kind of like these radio systems we're building that behave kind of like these radars we're using for the war that looks kind of like the problem of an, an automated turret that looks kind of like the electrical grid. And you got a bunch of cardiologists, psychologists, uh, engineers, radio theorists, people who are working on communication theory and were inventing the field, information theory. You got them all to sit down uh, at it, uh, the, the Macy conferences and the McCarthy conferences uh, and and hash out the idea that there was this thing about thinking, that thinking was a physical process and it could be modeled and described or approximated using some sort of man-made artifice. And this thing that they would describe that would come to be artificial intelligence was this idea that you could create a thing or set of things of unspecific uh, description of, of what their mechanism would be. But these things would appear to do all of the types of cognitive tasks that people do. And that set out to be the field's goal. So when we look back of how we got to here, we have to start with recognizing that you know, 70 odd years ago, this is where we wanted to be. This wasn't a fluke. The whole point was, can I automate all of the things 
that the human mind does? Can I build a mechanical process that approximates the behavior? And that's really important as we go forward in history because the goal was not to rebuild brains. The goal was to build processes that would create the end behavioral output as if it was indistinguishable from what brains did, which means it didn't have to do it the way brains do it. It didn't need to have some of the weird spooky trappings of what it means to be us. As long as the behavior was indistinguishable, we we're gonna call that good enough. So fast forward to the the waves of the AI winter and summer, which is the term that, that technical people call for. The fact that every about 20, 15 years, someone overhypes and overpromises their ability to deliver on AI. And it's happened since the 50s and the 70s and the 80s. And it, it keeps going where we get this expansion and contraction of funding and enthusiasm. And every time it gets like a new label, first it's cybernetics and then it's systems theory and then it's artificial intelligence and then it's symbolic systems and then it's expert systems and then it's neural networks and then it's machine learning. And now we're in deep learning and now we're in this this terrible phrase of foundational models and, and you just keep finding, finding new labels for it but we are in one of these cycles so the interesting question for us is are we ever going to find a winter again or are we kind of thawed out and now this engine really has some inertia to it because it's capable of producing these technologies almost fundamentally indistinguishable from magic or fundamentally indistinguishable from human cognition itself so for the question of how do we get to, to specifically to chat gpt we have to look back to this goal of the the field of of computational linguistics um, which, which I got to dip my toe into in, in my PhD work, which is, you know, can you build a machine that if you, if you, if you handed it some text, it would know what to do with it, and it could perform the types of things that humans can perform against it, like reasoning or meaning extraction or synthesizing novel text or classifying things, and that was always an, an academic pursuit. And I remember I'm old enough to have been in grad school only recently, and back at, at, when I was in grad school, the the state-of-the-art approaches to this were, were basically indistinguishable from the chatbots you grew up talking to as a kid. They were not particularly sophisticated. They were doing things like statistical inference of the, uh, how often words go together. And someone kept pulling on that thread um, and eventually got us to, to where we are now with this, this thing called the transformer model. Um, and I'm, I'm going to no, do none, no service to the true engineering inside of it. But the best way to, to understand what's going on in a transformer model is this. If you get out your iPhone right now and you go to messages and you type the word the, and then it shows you the three other words most likely to go next. And you just kept hitting that middle word and it starts assembling a sentence. You just keep going. How does it do that? What it's really doing is it's looking at based on all your previous conversations you've ever typed in, it's looking at the pairwise chance that the word the should then be followed by some next word. And it's saying, what's my best guess at the next word that should follow this? What about the next word after that? And then the next word after that? So you could imagine if I handed you a piece of paper and Shakespeare, I said, I want you to quickly work out for every word in, in, um, in uh, Romeo and Juliet, I want you to work out the probability of the next word that you see. So if you see Romeo, what's the next word that should come? And you could do that by hand. It would take you ages, but you could do it. If I said, okay, I want you to do this process again, but I want you to make the words two word groups. So I want you to, to look at two word chunks and then predict the next two words and then 
three words and the next three words. And I'll ask you to keep expanding this. At this point, you're going to need a stack of paper, a couple <laughs> pencils, some sharpeners, and some coffee. But you could do this. And then I said, okay, great. Now, I want you to formalize a set of mathematical approaches you could use to say, if I give you a word, I'll give you a bunch of words, what should be the next words? That's what a transformer model is doing. But it's doing it at the scale of having read billions of examples of text from all over the internet. And it's instead of trapping this on a pencil and a piece of paper, it's trapping it as the weights in a neural network in which when we give it a few words to work with, it is predicting the words that should come next. And that appears to be a, okay, that's an interesting parlor trick, but so what? The problem is this idea of latent space and latent capabilities. If you think about that task I asked you to do with Romeo and Juliet, uh, I don't think you would presume that if I gave you a set of words, you would then be able to work out an interesting novel part of the plot that was never actually written. What we're finding is that the way these transform models have been built is that they appear to know things that we wouldn't have explicitly said because the activations, the, the relationships between words and concepts that it's encoded are recombining in ways that might resemble, at least in behavior, what our brains do. And that gives it knowledge we didn't really expect it to have. So we'd say latent knowledge and now capabilities with language that we didn't program into it because we didn't, we didn't tell it instructions as much as we showed it swaths of text and gave it a learning apparatus that's not totally dissimilar to how your brain learns. And so when uh, computational linguistics and ethicists and critical theorists look at that and say, uh, well, that's not really thinking, that's just using statistical mechanics to parrot back what you've seen previously. So maybe you've seen the phrase stochastic parrot. Don't, don't pull on that thread too hard because you don't want to know how brains learn. <laughs> Chat GPT is a stochastic parrot. So are you. If you listen yes. to little kids and how little kids learn and you repeat words to them and they start picking apart statistical frequencies and patterns of language and then they start associating visual input with those patterns, that's what we're doing with these machines. And you just preempted Brian's like favorite quip in this space, which is like, yeah, how long does it take a two-year-old to learn how to do that? Yeah, a long Two time. Years. You got to repeat it a ton. <laughs> and even then, they're still bad at it for the next 80 years. And they don't even have a didactic memory. So, so these transformer models started developing latent knowledge and latent capabilities. And some teams said, okay, well, you know, if we make the, the number of degrees of freedom small, it, it's performant, it's easy to train this thing, but it's not particularly useful, not interesting. What if we made the degrees of freedom massive? In fact, let's give it like 175 billion degrees of freedom and see where it goes. So we get these, this now just go from a language model to a large language model. And this is where we see the capabilities that start looking like the types of things that humans do with language. So what happened in 2020 was OpenAI released the Generative Pre-Trained Transformer Model, the GPT, and their third iteration, which is built off GPT-2, which is built off Google's BERT transformer that they open sourced back in, I want to say, like 2019. Um, GPT-3 blew everybody away because it started doing things that seemed like human language. And then people found it running into walls. So we developed this meta field called prompt engineering 
to figure out how should I speak to a machine properly to work with how its mind kind of works and get out from it what we really want. And prompt engineering's taken off, and you see this most clearly now in things like stable diffusion or mid-journey. You guys have seen the descriptions that go into one mid-journey image. It's like a weird paragraph of text mm-hmm. just to get this one crazy specific visualization. So that's that's prompt engineering at its core. That's what people are trying to do is learn how to whisper to the machine right. A great reference, I think, for most people is how they interact with their search engine. Right. If you actually Perfect. looked at all your searches, you're doing that exact same thing, right? You're, you're doing prompt pieces engineering. together. You're pulling out punctuation. Yeah. You're throwing in concepts and words. And so prompt, exactly. You're prompt engineering your search engine on a really, really small scale. Yeah. Or yeah, I mean, I'll, we'll go one step meta. Uh, there's people have said like, yeah, I just don't think prompt engineering is a thing. It's like, dude, do you have a, do you have a child, a spouse, <laughs> a friend, an employer, an employer? Yeah. Do you got to kind of like talk to them a certain way for them to get it? Yeah. Yeah. It's called prompt engineering. <laughs> It's called human communication, dude. Well, and so then the the <laughs> the thing that makes me think of is an old app uh, we used to use, Brian, called Pavre. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember Pavre. Remember that? It's yeah. it's a it's a text first three D modeling program. So like with the right line of code, you can create a sphere and then give it lighting attributes and then render that mm-hmm. image out. But it was literally like you had to write a whole bunch of code, hit the button, wait a day maybe sometimes, (laughs) and then see if it worked. (laughs) But it's not, you know, what that turns into eventually mid-journey or whatever, right? Lenza, if you you keep writing code to solve the same problems. It also becomes Maya and whatever and all these other things where we're modeling the world in code. But like, you know, the collision of these things gets us this weird thing where it's like, yeah, you don't have to code anymore. Just talk like a human. Well, that's the shift, right? It's the shift from (laughs) software engineering is explicit, like by nature, almost by definition, right? It's super, it's breaking everything down to the most finite element of what you're trying to accomplish and explicitly typing it out. And that's what's so interesting and scary and weird and feels gooey to us because all of a sudden we're like, wait, this feels like I'm in the squishy space again with a human, but I'm on a computer. Um, Because because you're, so, so here's the the thing that ChatGPT did different a few weeks ago that now everybody is losing their mind about. (laughs) If you go talk to GPT-3 and you still can, you can get access either programmatically or in in a sandbox interface to GPT-3. You talk to it and you're you're talking to, you're, yeah, perfect. You're, you're talking to uh, a thing that doesn't feel like there's a there in there. (laughs) What, they did was they did something called prompt injection. So when you talk to chat GPT, what's really happening is they're taking your text and they're also padding it with instructions that create this consistent hallucinatory sense of conversational continuity mm-hmm. and memory that as you keep talking to it, it's like you're talking to a thinking thing because it remembers what it just said not that it actually remembers. They're just taking the copy from its response and your last input and chaining it together and refeeding it to itself. And so every time it's vividly hallucinating this conversation afresh, but to you, the user, the way they packaged and delivered it is such that you feel you're actually just talking to a thing that's there, that there's a there's almost a a, a sense of, of agency or consistency or or intelligence on the other side of this thing you don't feel like you're talking to a statistical approximation of linguistic frequencies 
you feel like you're talking to something that just remembered what you asked it last. And that is the piece, I think, where people feel comfortable playing with this. And what they've started doing now is saying intuitively, well, can it solve my problems? And my problems mm -hmm. tend to be relatively like everybody's problems. I am trying to not have to do my homework today. I don't know how to ask out this pretty girl on a dating app. I need to have an argument with my boss about my raise or my bonus getting cut. I'm interested in learning about the divine. And they start talking to it and it's giving them useful answers like a person would, but about everything. And I think this is the moment where people are, are sort of going, oh, so this whole thinking machine thing. Okay, so that's a thing. Yeah. Although also often confidently wrong. Confidently which is, wrong. Which is why your work. But uh, right. that's also we most just, people, including myself. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm also, I'm also fist in the air as a producer over here because I brought it back around to Brian's initial question. What's different this time is like... One of my favorite things to say in this space is everything's AI until it works, and then it's software yeah, or it's software. something else, right? Like, yeah. this just finally got to that point where give it just enough information, it can do just enough of a version of like, it, it's meant to be a demonstration of where we are with this stuff, but we are over, by putting that interface on top of it to make it output more effectively in a way that feels human, I'll say, because yeah. I don't want to say as a human, but it's like... feels human. It's in a way that human. a human would, right? Yeah, it's uh, supposed to feel human. It does the thing it's supposed to do in that sense. Yeah. And so, of course, everybody yeah. is suddenly going, wait a minute, I don't have to write a resume ever again? Fuck yes. I love yeah. this. Yeah. Right? It's like it, it organically it also... gets to the perfect demo for the use case that I think is the evolution we're talking about here with this thing, that, which is yeah. commoditized good enough idea delivery everything. commoditized good enough no commoditized good enough everything i have yeah. to stop you there it's not idea delivery if we keep saying no but it's like just this one corner of what i need we're gonna miss the boat yeah it's the idea of i need you to take every facet of human cognition everything you do that involves manipulating symbols instead of manipulating atoms and i need you to imagine never having to do that again this the, the thing i keep running into with this uh, that is really intriguing and, and fun right now for me is it's it's like the the technology manifestation of how I felt all through school. Every time I had to write the same paper that everyone else in my class was writing that everyone wrote the semester before, I was like, this doesn't serve any purpose in the universe. Like you're educating me, but you could be educating me differently. And this all yeah. of a sudden, there's I've had so many conversations with people this week about what does this mean for like journalism? What does this mean for academia? What does this mean it, for like what, everything what that I've ever high done? High school. Why yeah, did yeah, I like... start? Why did I start this conversation with a history lesson? Again, because the original stated goal of the field was to take everything that could be done by human brains and make it automated. So you need to think the correct aperture setting to think about this is is the the farthest one out you have, and then click it and break it just one more notch. <laughs> You, you need to look at the impact of this as being the totalized whole of the intellectual human labor force. That is the impact scale. It is not journalists. It is not doctors. It is not engineers. It is humans. That is the right scale to think about this on. Yeah, the shift for me this week in terms of how to think about this is not 
what do I do to like utilize this? It's what do I do to give this access to all to break the digital to physical barrier now? How do I give this yeah. access to like drive the lawnmower? How do I give this access to access uh-huh. to my bank accounts and make financial decisions? How do I yep. write all the things that are like, you can't, like, we didn't make computers do because they couldn't really do it before. Now I want them to schedule my plane flight. I want them to drive my car, right? Yep. All of it I think yep. is so obvious now. Yep. And that was always the goal. That was it. That yep. was always from the start. That was, you were, you were not looking at this being like, mm, what an interest. of course it's an interesting thought, but you're not the first person to crack that one open. That was the goal 70 years ago mm-hmm. was the, and by the way, uh, the, like the, the economists were in on it. So John Maynard Keynes famously said it is un, it'd be uncanny to expect you working more than a couple hours a week on the back of full end to end automation. Uh, in, in the words of Arthur C. Clarke, the goal of the future is not full unemployment, but full unemployment such that we may play. <laughs> Have you given it the prompt yet, Brian, that I gave you about asking it to write in your style? Oh, You've I haven't tried enough that blog yet. posts that I bet it can do it. I asked it to write a blog post in the style of Adam Kerpelman, and it did it. You're pretty, you're pretty unique. My name I mean, is pretty generic. There's a lot of stuff I've <laughs> written, so it's probably been ingested into the corpus for training. But like yeah, the fact it. that it can do that, I mean, you try Mark Twain, you'll get the same result. Oh, totally. Hemingway, you'll get the same yeah, yeah. result. But like yeah. as a test, it's I beautiful. That, it's it's a beautiful experience to go play with this. The, I think the last thing to hit is like uh, the why now of it is capped off by why does it feel the way that it feels right now, which for me is like an overwhelming sense of FOMO where I'm like, I've been watching this closely. I didn't think it was going to happen this fast, which makes me like this edge of technology is continually breaking my sense of time scale for the evolution yeah. of something mm-hmm. like this. And so, yeah. so I think we've hit that point where forever it's going to feel like, Oh shit, that happened faster than I thought. So uh, do you remember, remember that movie interstellar? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that movie. I love interstellar. I hate people. Who are like, oh, it's Batman. I love that movie. Um, <laughs> in interstellar, they, they go they're visit. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're wrong. They, they go visit. So it was like, it was, like a, it was like a planet closer to a black hole or something, and every minute that passed on that planet was like a week back to the main ship. Right. And so, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey's got this line of like, you know, we got to be careful. One hour is like six months out there. And so they go <laughs> do like a, they, they go do like a 30-minute excursion. And it ends up being like, I'm getting all the math wrong, but it ends up being like a decade goes by where their homie's just alone in the ship because of relativity. Um, so the joke is that if you work in AI right now, one month feels like a year. <laughs> at the current rate of expansion so I, I i recall that like so 2022 has been the longest year of my life by decades um riding shotgun on this the second thing i'll point out is that humans are miserable at judging acceleration just period but full stop you're bad at it it doesn't matter how what mental tricks you try to compensate with to be better at it you're bad at it everyone's bad at judging acceleration Everyone good should to be remember. familiar with this right now if they were surprised by the pandemic. Like Bingo. That people who are familiar with this AI stuff saw that happen and went, "Oh, this is exponential growth." Yeah, uh, I was the first guy we we hadn't <laughs> shut down the office yet when I worked at Applied VR and I started cleaning. I started cleaning my desk out and going and buying food in bulk and my friends looking at me like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "You're an idiot." This is <laughs> you like he's like dude there's one case i'm like that is correct sir there's one case give it a week um so i I bring this up because 
if you're interested in, in thinking about how to how to survive that the rest of forever um, without feeling like you're permanently backfooted on the structure of reality itself, one of the first ideas you're going to have to get right is adjusting how you model acceleration and how you model change, especially when it comes to the kind of change that is driven by these techno-capital forces that are about restructuring our relationship to intelligence and reality itself. And the good first intuition is that no matter how long you think something's going to take, you're probably overestimating it. And no matter how thorough or systematic you think the change is going to be, you're probably underestimating it. And the last thing that I'll throw in real quick before we wrap this sucker up, go listen to our open source episode. And then remember that all of this stuff is built on open source software. Mm, it's right. can't put it back it's in a cool box. Fallout. When There's high no schoolers, when when like high school teachers go, oh, what do we do about this? You just come up with a completely new plan because yeah. your kids are not going to write essays the same way they did before. Nor and should we put it back of, in a box. Could you lock it? You know, like can you stop? No, you can't. Can you break it? You end up with massive unfairness with every way that you can possibly try to break that thing because people yeah. will get access. It's out of the box. Right. Like, and so... by the way, you, you, you couldn't stop this if you tried. The very thing that gave us these MacBooks we're recording on is what gives us ChatGPT. You don't right. get to pick and choose what techno capital acceleration decides is going to be a new novel form of auto sophisticating technology. It is a totalizing force. It's going to drive everything forward simultaneously as long as there's a market for it. And goddamn, the markets love <laughs> synthesizing intelligence. Oh my God, they love it. You know what capital doesn't like? Labor. <laughs> you know what capital likes? Technology. Yes, tech, capital likes better techniques for making money. Which That's is all it wants. A completely different episode talking about technology as an ology and not this just is, the gadgets. This has been in a good uh, a good hype episode. So I think <laughs> we've got about ten fun. explicit episodes after this. Yeah. To right. dive into specific areas. Um, <laughs> great. I love that. But yeah, man, thanks for thanks for joining us. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so I'm on the interwebs. I'm I'm pretty easy. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Ramsey Brown. Um, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at Take Control AI. And on Instagram at the AI Responsibility Lab, um, we're always looking to meet people who think about these problems either from the perspective of their data scientists and companies, and they want to streamline and automate AI governance. They're people who have questions or are curious about what's going on in AI ethics, responsible AI, or AI safety. They're regulators or they're members of the public sector who are trying to wrap their heads around the biggest problem known, second biggest problem known to man. Um, so anyone who's curious, come by, say hi, and we'd love to chat. Awesome. Thanks yeah. again for joining us. And Brian, thanks, for, everybody, for joy. listening. Yeah, uh, I don't have to do a bunch of pimping things because, you know, we just show up sometimes. Stay subscribed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Guys, thank you. Thank you for having life. me. I'll see you soon. Thank this you for joining. This has been Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. I'm Ramsey. Take it easy, everybody. <laughs>